Welcome to the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy podcast for another example of astronomy and astronomy-related misconceptions, mistakes, half-truths, and conspiracies. My name is Stuart Robbins, and this is episode 46 for the first quarter of August 2012. The topic I'm going to talk about today is Emanuel Velikovsky and his ideas about Venus. I've written this to be a self-contained episode, but the mythology of Velikovsky is so extensive that it's possible, in fact maybe probable, that there will be future episodes about him and his ideas. Before I actually talk about the scenarios that Velikovsky proposed, I need to first say that much of what you will find out there today is not what Velikovsky originally thought. The essence of many of his primary claims have been co-opted by many different people for many different purposes. The most common that I've encountered has been by proponents of the Electric or Plasma Universe idea, often abbreviated as EU, that will be the subject of several future podcast episodes. That said, I'm going to give you an overview about the man himself before we get into his ideas. Velikovsky was alive during what many might call the golden age of physics in the early 1900s when the two main pillars of modern physics, quantum mechanics and relativity, were formulated. Velikovsky was born in 1895 in a town possibly pronounced as Vitebsk, or present-day Belarus, and he died in 1979 in Princeton, New Jersey, USA. Velikovsky was Jewish, and he worked with Albert Einstein to prepare and publish two volumes of scientific papers into Hebrew. Velikovsky proponents will say that when Albert Einstein died, he was holding, or had on his nightstand, a copy of one of Velikovsky's books, though I have yet to find any actual confirmation of that from anywhere but pro-Velikovsky sources. And that's actually about as far as I can get into his bio, although other people somehow managed to get much further, without saying that Velikovsky was a psychiatrist. As in, he was not a historian, not a physicist, not an astronomer, chemist, biologist, geologist, archaeologist, nor even a scientist in the general sense of the term. Wikipedia makes note of him as a independent scholar, which is generally a polite term for a basement amateur scientist who doesn't really know what he's doing. Think, you know, the kind of person who develops perpetual motion devices in their spare time. And Velikovsky's ideas about astronomy are akin to the claims of perpetual motion devices. His ideas, which I'll get to in a moment, were published mostly in two main books, the first being Worlds in Collision in 1950, and the second was Earth in Upheaval in 1955. He also published Ages in Chaos between those two in 1952, where he claimed to completely revise the history of ancient Egypt and of Israel. It should be noted that that book has been rejected by all mainstream historians and Egyptologists, and many of the sources he used for the book have been discredited. Which brings us back to the crux of the matter, his first book, the main one that I'll be talking about in this episode, Worlds and Collision. The tagline of the book that appeared on the original cover is, The Daring and Original Vision of Earth's History, The Great Scientist Prophet's Revelations of Cosmic Drama! The main premise of the book is that around 1600 years ago or so, Venus was ejected from Jupiter as a comet, or as a comet-like object. It passed by Mars and drained its water and atmosphere, and it passed by Earth one or two or three maybe times, changing Earth's orbit 
its axis, and causing many of the catastrophes mentioned in early mythologies. Then it settled into its current orbit that we see today. In a sense, this could be thought of as yet another Planet X idea. It bears mentioning that Velikovsky's ideas have been addressed many times before, and the contemporaneous refutations by astronomers was extensive. In particular, the original publisher, Macmillan, was forced, after only two months, to sell the book to another publisher because of the outcry by astronomers and physicists that Macmillan included it with their textbook catalog for college professors. Many professors started to send their textbooks from Macmillan back unopened and refused to be editors for their books. Parts of this may have been because the New York literati considered Velikovsky to be on par with, quote, Einstein, Newton, Darwin, and Freud, to quote from Carl Sagan, whereas a scientist reading just a single page of his book would more generally think that Velikovsky was more on par with someone such as L. Ron Hubbard. Most scientific circles denied Velikovsky the forum to address his critics, which made him state that he was a, quote, suppressed genius, and he likened himself to Giordano Bruno, who was burned at the stake for saying not only did Earth revolve around the sun, but that the sun was just like any other one of those many, many points of light in the sky. Basically, it was a modern persecution complex, or a modern Galileo complex, and as a psychiatrist, I'm a little bit surprised that he would revert to it. It's also been carried forward to most of his disciples today, who use the argument from persecution quite frequently when talking about his and their ideas. There is an extensive history here politically, and I'm not really going to get into it beyond what I just talked about, otherwise this episode will last even longer than it should. Suffice to say, if you're interested in that stuff, I'll have a link or two in the show notes. My personal opinion is that if Velikovsky had just tried to present this as a historical science fiction or fantasy rather than fact, he would have had a much better time with it. Problem is, he tried to present it as science fact and he tried in later versions to remove some of the more direct statements that violated basic physics in his appendix on celestial mechanics. Velikovsky had hoped that most of his proposals would stand on the mythology and ancient writings evidence that he had collected. Now, before I really get into some of what this mythology was, I want to state something that should be obvious, if not politically correct. Mythology from world religions does not count as evidence for a scientific happening. I'm sorry, it really doesn't. In fact, it's two logical fallacies for the price of one, argument from antiquity and argument ad populum, or argument from popularity. This should not be confused with me saying that anything people wrote 5,000 years ago cannot be used as evidence for something. For example, the Chaco Canyon culture recorded a supernova event in AD 1054, and astronomical evidence today that anyone could investigate has validated that recording which we now see as the Crab Nebula. Similarly, I have no reason to doubt census records from ancient Rome, because they make sense in light of other things that we know historically and don't violate basic archaeology. But, a myth about Athena springing from her father, Zeus's head, being used by Velikovsky and today by Velikovsky proponents is something that I have issue with. And it's not just because they wrongly tie Athena to Venus when it was actually Aphrodite who was tied to Venus. 
So not only are they trying to use a Greek myth as evidence for something astronomical and physical, but they're changing the people in that myth in order to make it work with their bigger idea. It's not something that I'm going to accept as evidence that Venus formed from Jupiter in the historic recorded past. But Velikovsky did. His main approach was to openly flout pretty much all branches of science and rely on disparate world mythologies that discuss the same thing. For example, if the ancient religions of India talked about a giant flood and the ancient religions of the native Canadians also talked about a giant flood, then Velikovsky would say that that is evidence that a giant flood really happened, and it happened all over the world, and he would then say that Venus caused it. He blames Venus for the sun standing still in the book of Joshua and the plagues on Egypt in the book of Exodus, both part of the Hebrew Bible. He's also been criticized for cherry-picking what he wants to use. For example, the conflicting accounts in pretty much every world mythology of origin of the cosmos and Earth itself are ignored by Velikovsky. But he happily selected ones that agreed with his idea. Or he modified them as needed, such as the example I gave about the birth of Athena, a.k.a. Minerva, versus the birth of Aphrodite, a.k.a. Venus, which had nothing to do with Zeus, a.k.a. Jupiter. As another example, he blames Venus for worldwide accounts of vermin and insects, stating, quote, The question arises here whether or not the comet Venus infested the Earth with vermin, which it may have carried in its trailing atmosphere in the form of larvae, together with stones and gases. It is significant that all around the world people have associated the planet Venus with flies. End quote. He does not explain how larvae would survive the near vacuum of a comet's tail, nor the heat of Venus' surface, nor how they would get there in the first place after Venus was ejected from Jupiter. Instead, Velikovsky seemed to openly expect astronomers and physicists and other scientists to be so enamored by his work that it would be they who would go out and provide the evidence for him. One of those lines of evidence that some people have put forward is Venus's spin. For those who don't know, Venus is unique among the planets in the solar system because it spins clockwise when looking down from above Earth's north pole. Everything else spins counterclockwise. Venus also spins very, very slowly. Modern Velikovskyites, or Velikovskians, say that this is evidence that Venus didn't form with the rest of the planets in the solar system. To skeptics who may be listening to this episode, you might be yelling at the moment, ARGUMENT FROM IGNORANCE! All because we do not have a definite, known reason for Venus spinning slowly and in the opposite direction does not mean that you can use it as evidence for your own otherwise unsupported idea. And we actually do have two plausible explanations, both of which physically work and don't violate any basic laws. The first is that it was whacked by something big and this changed its rotation. The second is that tidal forces and resonances with the sun, basically a dynamics argument, acted to flip it over. And even if you don't like either of those, they are still more plausible than Venus being shot out of Jupiter 16,000 years ago. Another claimed line of evidence has to do with Venus's heat. Velikovsky thought that Venus's surface was as hot as it is, around 450 degrees centigrade or 850 Fahrenheit, because it was leftover heat from its recent birth from Jupiter. Except that the reason for the heat, the greenhouse effect, 
had been explained by Rupert Vilt in 1940, ten years before Velikovsky published his book. In the end, Venus does not emit more heat than it receives from the Sun, and its heat is easily explained by basic math and basic physics that I've had introductory astronomy students do for homework. Which brings us to the first of several categories of refutations that I'm going to go into in this episode. The first is the basic fact that there is a lack of any physical mechanism, and that his ideas violate the previous 300 or so years of physics. Physics that had been developed and tested innumerable times over the centuries, and then, based on Velikovsky's reading of world mythologies, he thinks you can throw it all away. For a very, very short two-item list, there is A, no known mechanism for a gas giant like Jupiter to spontaneously eject a giant comet that turns into a planet, and B, there's no way to get Venus to a stable orbit around the Sun that it is now, due to conservation of energy and momentum. If it seems as though I'm being a little bit flippant here, it's with a purpose, one that I'll talk about again in maybe 5-10 to minutes. If you have a new idea, but in order to make it work you have to ignore several major branches of science that have been developed up to that point, the burden of evidence is on you. Well, it's always on you regardless but especially if it violates what was previously known to be true. Velikovsky would need to not just present his thesis, which he did, and the evidence for it, which he also did, but most people found it to be lacking, but he would also need to go that extra step that scientists do, but pseudoscientists usually do not do. He needs to go back through work that's been done before and show why his model explains the observational data at least as well, if not better than, what had been done before. Velikovsky did not do this, and he specifically stated on page 11 of his book, quote, If, occasionally, historical evidence does not square with formulated laws, it should be remembered that a law is but a deduction from experience and experiment, and therefore laws must conform with historical facts, not facts with laws. End quote. If it's not obvious, the problem with this is what Velikovsky considers to be a historical fact. And, if it sounded like a young earth creationist argument if you replace historical fact with what the Bible says, you would not be the first person to think that and make that analogy. The second line of refutation, and I swear I'll go a bit more into detail on this one, is Venus itself. Specifically, its orbital elements, surface and surface age, and its atmosphere. In other words, everything about it. Venus's orbit is stable, quote, too stable, end quote, to some modern Velikovskians. The orbital eccentricity of Venus is only 0.007, meaning that the difference between its closest and farthest approach to the Sun is only about 1%, or about 1.4 million kilometers, versus Earth's difference of about 5.01 million kilometers. This is important because it's something that we often use with the outer solar system's planet's moons in order to figure out whether or not they formed with the planet or if they were captured later on. The argument for the moons goes, if it orbits with the planet, is in the plane of rotation of the planet, and it has a low eccentricity orbit, then it's much more likely to have formed with the planet than to have been captured afterwards. 
Similarly, the fact that Venus orbits close to the plane of the rest of the planets and has a very low eccentricity orbit is a good indication that it formed in that location, or at least near its current orbit. It would be very, very difficult for it to dynamically arrive at its current orbit if ejected from Jupiter, although the Electric Universe crowd does have their own mechanism. It should be mentioned here that this is, in fact, the opposite of Velikovsky's claim that Venus has an abnormal orbit as a consequence of its birth from Jupiter. For surface age, if we go back to episode 40 and 41, where I talked about craters, then based on everything that we think we know about crater age dating, Venus's surface is much older than Earth's, and it dates to around 700 million years ago, as the last time that it was majorly resurfaced. I've not really seen any Velikovsky supporter argue that point. Velikovsky directly stated, in terms of the atmosphere, that Venus must be rich in petroleum gases and hydrocarbons, which you'd think would be used as a test to support or falsify his idea. We've had many spacecraft orbit and land on Venus, and none have detected petroleum, nor hydrocarbons, nor even carbohydrates. Venus's atmosphere, in fact, is made almost entirely of carbon dioxide, carbon in its oxidized form, as opposed to the reducing form that Velikovsky needed. It could not have taken this kind of atmosphere from Jupiter because Jupiter is mostly hydrogen and helium. And it couldn't be the source of hydrocarbons to react in our atmosphere to produce carbohydrates during its two close encounters with Earth in 1440 and 1395 BC. Really, when you get down to it, everything about Venus falsifies Velikovsky's idea, except for the way that Venus spins about its own axis, the opposite way of the other planets that I talked about earlier. Another line of evidence against the idea that Venus headed from the outer solar system to the inner has to do with something that I've discussed before when discussing Zachariah Sitchin's 3,600-year orbiting Planet X, the stability of the asteroid belt. The asteroid belt is dynamically stable over very long periods of time, and it shows absolutely no evidence of a large, planet-sized object having passed through it within the last few hundred million years, let alone the last few thousand. Really not much else to be said about this point, which takes us to Mars geology. One of the claims is that ancient cultures once saw Mars as blue, but then after an encounter with Venus, Venus sapped its atmosphere and water, and Mars appears as it is now. But this violates most of what we know about Mars history, and what we can see in its geology today. If you don't believe the crater evidence that shows the northern hemisphere was resurfaced around 3 billion years ago, and valley networks were last active around 3.5 billion years ago, then we can look at the erosion of the surface features today. We can measure the erosion rate today, and in fact many have, based upon data from landers and rovers on the surface. In a post-water age, the current erosion rate is not enough to have eroded surface features such as craters and valleys to the state that they are now in just a few thousand years. You either need much more time, or have much more active erosion. But both of those would violate Velikovsky's idea about Venus sucking up the water and atmosphere of the planet. Therefore, Mars geology is yet another way to show that at least this aspect of Velikovsky's ideas is wrong. Another line of evidence is Earth's moon's orbit and Earth's day. 
an argument that I first saw from Phil Plate and might be original to him. In just the last episode, I explained how we can measure how long Earth's day has been, dating back not only a few thousand years to the Babylonian record of the eclipse about eh, 2150 years ago, but going back hundreds of millions of years, if not all the way back to about 2.5 billion years ago. As I established last time, Earth has had a fairly steadily increasing day for several billion years, and the moon has been in a stable orbit as well. But that would not be possible if Venus swung by, especially if Venus was close enough to exchange some atmosphere with Earth and deposit little critters. This three-body dynamics problem would very likely have kicked the moon not only out of Earth orbit, but also out of the solar system itself. At the very, very least, it would have significantly altered its orbit, and it would A, not be in nearly the exact same orbit as it was a million years ago, and B, it would not be in the same regular, tidally locked orbit that we see it today. A final, quick line of refutation, well, not quite quick, brings us back to Earth, our home planet. Unless, of course, you follow Richard C. Hoagland, who believes that we're all Martians, but that's a future episode. Velikovsky claims that these things happened within the last few thousand years, as in, a friggin' planet passed so close to Earth that larvae from it were deposited on our surface, and it baked the planet and caused floods at the same time while changing our rotation. Velikovsky made great use of world mythologies and interpreted them to fit his model of Venus gallivanting around and coming really, really, really close to Earth. One would think that the ancient civilizations wouldn't be writing about a goddess springing forth from a god's head or making much ado about flies and rats. You'd think that they'd be directly writing something like, I looked up today and this giant ball bigger than the moon nearly hit my hut and this giant trail of crap was left behind. Okay, I, I do exaggerate a bit. I don't know the, if the ancient Sanskrit had a word for crap, but my point is that one would expect people to be a tad more literal only a few thousand years ago, and yet they weren't. The Romans, the Greeks, the Babylonians, the Egyptians, the Chinese, all these people kept really detailed astronomical records, and yet nowhere do they really talk about a friggin' planet coming in close contact with Earth. In fact, all of these ancient civilizations record it, as Yul Brynner famously put it in a very, very long movie, the morning and the evening star. Sumerians, Babylonians, Mayans, all of these ancient civilizations had the planet's orbit pinned down really well several thousand years ago, and we have written records of it that exist today. That could not, I repeat, it could not be the case if Venus were still gallivanting around the solar system and encountered Earth in 1440 and 1395 BC, as Velikovsky claimed. For more of a physical evidence close to home, the asteroid that created the Chicxulub impact crater 65 million, million with an M, years ago, left a blanket of soot, ash, and iridium across the entire planet. There is in fact a 5 centimeter, about 2 inch thick layer just a few hours south of me. And yet, somehow, ice cores, tree rings, rock layers, and all of the other methods that we have of detecting an abnormal event in Earth's geologic history are missing, just from a few thousand years ago where you'd think it would be easier to find. That's about 
all of the major lines of evidence against what Velikovsky wrote in his original book. As I said at the beginning, there are many, many variants of it today, and most Velikovsky followers today will say that Velikovsky had some things wrong, but most of what he said was correct. Those might be addressed in one or more future episodes. I also think it's important to note at the end of this main segment that this is the first anniversary episode of the podcast. You may have noted that in the last few episodes, and in this one, I've referred back to previous episodes for evidence or for topics discussed as lines of reasoning for the current topic. That might seem a little lazy on my part, but it serves another purpose. One of the major problems with all of the pseudoscientific claims that I've discussed, and will discuss, is that the claimants often state that the problem with science today is that it's too specialized, yet they, as an outsider, are able to put everything together in a way that the establishment cannot. To the contrary, by bringing up topics that I discussed before, or basic scientific principles that were developed hundreds of years ago, like Kepler's laws, and that have been tested over and over and over and over and over again and shown to be true or shown to be valid and accurately predict the experiment's results, my point is to emphasize that it is their ideas that tug on and violate all of these intricately woven threads throughout many fields of science. Velikovsky not only would change what we know about Venus, but it would also have to change everything we know about orbital dynamics and geology and history and physics and all sorts of other fields. Rather than these folks creating a new, cohesive idea that they like and they think explains many different fields of science, it instead violates parts of established, demonstrable, and incontrovertible theories, laws, and observations that they probably have never even thought of. And so, to all of those so-called self-described amateur scientists out there, Be careful. When someone tells you, heck, when every scientist from several different disciplines tells you, as they did with Velikovsky, that your ideas are wrong, rather than claim persecution and run to the History or Discovery Channel or Late Night Radio, pause for a bit, and maybe, just maybe, you should listen to them. No new news for this episode, so moving directly on to Q&A, this episode's question comes from Warwick, who asks, I have a question about craters and the impacts that create them. Is the energy of the impact the only determinant of the size and morphology of the crater? In other words, is there any difference in the craters, as in size, depth, wall shape, ejecta, etc., made by an iron meteorite and a comet, if the comet's velocity is higher by exactly the right amount, to give them the same kinetic energy. Does the higher density have any detectable effect on the crater? To answer him, there is a lengthy equation that describes the size of the transient crater formed, and then another that describes how large the final crater will be given the size of the transient crater. The variables that go into the transient crater equation are The density of the impactor, the density of the target, the surface gravity of the target, the diameter of the impactor, the velocity of the impactor, and the angle of impact. The exponents on the densities of the projectile and the target are such that the term is really just the cubed root of the ratio of the projectile to the target. The length term is to the 0.78 power, 
but the velocity term is to the 0.44 power. When I use the real equation, rather than the approximation of kinetic energy, I still get that the comet would make a larger crater, everything else being equal. If you take extreme values, such as the least dense comet, or the most dense asteroid, the fastest asteroid at Earth, the slowest comet at Earth, then you could make a similarly sized crater or a slightly bigger one from the asteroid. But really, it does get down to the basic argument of energy. There is nothing special about a higher density impact to make a different kind of crater, so long as it has the same energy as a lower density impactor. And really that's because the projectile itself is pretty much destroyed within the initial few seconds of the impact itself. That wraps up this Q&A segment, and if you'd like to submit a question for consideration, please use any of the feedback methods available. Although the easiest is really just to send an email to podcast at sgrdesign.net. One item of feedback this episode related to last episode's topic on the moon's slowing recession rate. Robert S. wrote in asking about leap seconds and whether those would be a good way to show that, indeed, Earth's rotation rate is slowing. The answer is indeed yes. The leap second are added to UTC, or Universal Coordinated Time, based on the time shown by atomic clocks versus what's measured with the sun relative to the stars. The clocks show that leap seconds are needed to be added to correct for our very slowly lengthening day. But when they are added is irregular, indicating that while our day is slowing and that in the long term it might be slowing at a predictable rate, it is slowing at a variable rate in the short term. There was no puzzler last time, so there's no solution to discuss, and I couldn't think of a good one really deserving of the Velikovsky topic for this time, so there is no puzzler for this time. The topic for the next episode is going to be on image processing, and so there will probably be a puzzler on that, but if you have ideas for a good one, please, please send them in. By way of announcements, this is my anniversary episode, so some obligatory statistics are in order. Yes, it was one year ago this day, August 1st, 2011, that I released my first episode on the dark side, or alleged dark side, of the moon. Since that time, there have been 45 episodes plus a special video released, not including this episode. The podcast has been downloaded its total of about 77,000 times, serving up over a terabyte of data. The most popular episode by far has been number four, a special on Comet Elenian last year, but that was a special case where Fraser Kane's blogging about the episode on Universe Today made its download number go from about 52 after four days to over 3,500 just two days after Fraser blogged about it. If that episode is ignored, then the next most popular by over 60% more than the next is episode 21, The Geographic Pole Shift Part 1. That actually is to be expected, as my blog posts about 2012 pole shifts and what the sky looks like are among the most popular on my blog. The site itself has been hit by people in over 132 countries, with the United States, Canada, and Australia the top three. Surprisingly, at least to me, in 2012, Sweden replaced Great Britain as the fourth top downloader, or at least in page hits. Britain is actually third in most data downloaded, with Australia fourth and Sweden fifth. Germany comes in next, and then the numbers drop precipitously. 
Based on a few different methods, I estimate the quarter-monthly listenership to be about 1,000, so it's not a tiny podcast, but it's by no means large and mainstream. The Twitter feed has 65 followers, and Facebook just passed 100 about two weeks ago, and now it's about at 105. Other than the podcast name, the top searches that have gotten people to the site have been for Sun Path and John Lear. It's nice to know that people searching for John Lear will find my podcast. The podcast has turned from one with a main segment, Feedback and Puzzler, that comes out bi-monthly to one that comes out every quarter month with a Q&A and occasional new news segments as well. But otherwise, the basic concept for the podcast has not changed, and I still introduce it to people sometimes as, Imagine Astronomy Cast and Skeptoid had a love child. This would be that love child. Finally, because this is announcements and the anniversary episode, don't forget that you can find me online at podcast.sjrdesign.net, on Facebook under Exposing Pseudoastronomy, me personally on Twitter as Dr. Astro Stew, that's D-R Astro Stew, or the podcast on Twitter as Pseudo Astro. That wraps up this topic for the 46th edition of the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy podcast. Thank you for listening, and I hope that you enjoyed it and learned a little, and maybe a lot, at the same time. For more information about this podcast, please visit the website at podcast.sjrdesign.net. If you have any feedback, please use 1, the feedback form on the website, 2, send an email to podcast.sjrdesign.net, 3, Leave a comment on the page for this episode on the website. Four, leave a comment on my blog post for this episode. Five, leave a comment on the Facebook page for the podcast. Or six, send me a tweet at pseudoastro. I do read every email and message and appreciate the feedback. If you have questions or suggestions for topics, please feel free to make them. Please also write a review and rate it on iTunes or the podcast searching software of your choice. If you liked the podcast, then also please tell your friends and family. Mm-hmm.